right. Daniel chapter 11. And what I'm going to do is just give you a thumbnail sketch. Actually, the passage begins in chapter 10. Let me just give you a thumbnail sketch of what's going on because most of it we're just going to is just going to be this thumbnail sketch. It starts out in Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel who to whom God has revealed enormous amounts of information wants more. So he goes into a, to- a period of several days of fasting and prayer. And he is, and of course, Daniel is an extremely uh, important man in the Persian Empire. He started out in the Babylonian Empire. When the Persians came in, they said, aha, this guy is really good at his job. We want him too. And so he's uh, high up in the, in the Persian Empire. But before we go any further, let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, uh, we do want information. But we don't want information just for its own sake. We want information so that we can understand what your plan is, what your ways are, so that we can look at the events in the world around us and see things through the Bible lens and understand how things are going to unfold still in the days yet before us. We ask this of you that you would be our rabbi tonight, our teacher tonight, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, Daniel wants more information. He's fasting, he's praying, and he has fasted for several days. He is right at the, he's on the bank of the Tigris River, and suddenly he has a vision, and he hears voices, and it is so frightening, the men who are with him all flee. And he goes face down into the dirt. I mean, he is so overwhelmed by the enormity and power of the vision that he sees. He sees an angel above the river. And he is so overwhelmed by it, he just goes down on his face. He loses all of his energy. He can hardly has enough energy to even speak. And he has to be energized by this angel. The angel comes down, speaks to him, puts his hand on him, and he is able to stand up and speak and interact with the angel because the angel supplies him with the energy that he needs. But this is an overwhelming experience for for Daniel. And then the angel begins to unfold what Daniel has been asking for. And is he lays out what is going to happen. Now, Daniel is a bureaucrat, top bureaucrat in the Persian Empire. And he lays out what is going to be happening uh, betwixt the, the Persians who are going to be succeeded. And Daniel already knows this because God disclosed it to him. The Persians are going to be succeeded by the Greeks. And what happens is Alexander the Great is going to invade the Persian Empire long after Daniel's death. Daniel is writing in the 500s B.C. Alexander the Great is going to invade the Persian Empire in about 150 years. But God has already laid this out before Daniel. 
what's going that the Persian Empire will be succeeded by the by the Greeks. Alexander the Great is going to invade the Persian Empire. He's going to conquer the Persian Empire in no time flat. And as I indicated a couple weeks, a week or two ago, it, it was really, just from the standpoint of military history, one of the most incredible uh, conquests. Because Alexander the Great came from Greece into Persia with an army of about 22 or 3,000 men. And he is doing battle against Persian armies in the three and four hundred thousands. But the difference is Alexander's soldiers are actual soldiers. <laughs> they are trained. They have been doing this since for years and years. They were trained by his father, Philip of Macedon. And as indicated a week or two ago, the average age of Alexander's heavy infantrymen is in their mid-50s. <laughs> They've been doing this for 35, 40 years. And they are the anvil that the Persian armies or, and any other opponent is pushed down on. The, the, the hammer is the, the stretching out, is the light infantry and cavalry, comes around one side of the enemy, encircles them, and pushes them down onto the anvil, and that's where the heavy infantrymen are, and they just annihilate the enemy as they're pushed down on these, this anvil, this wall of heavy infantry. And the Persians, and this is something where culture really is a huge difference. The Greeks were citizens. Each Greek soldier owned himself. He's there. He's been recruited. He's being paid. He is, he is there. He actually owns a chunk of ground back in Greece. That mindset is enormous. There's a wonderful book came out about 15 years ago. I've already recommended it to you fabulous title carnage and culture by victor davis hansen came out about 15 years ago he is a greek scholar tremendous writer and that is the theme of his book is alexander it was the fact that the greeks were citizens and landowners even if their land wasn't particularly valuable and by the way greece is a lot like the texas hill country it's not very productive but was yours is yours so these citizen soldiers are there under the command of Alexander. The Persians, on the other hand, were all slaves. Everybody in the empire belongs to the emperor. And so the emperor's idea is, well, I will show up with 400,000 men on the battlefield, and they will all just love the idea of giving their lives for my glory. Nah, <laughs> they didn't. And so they fled, and they fled, and they fled. And it only took Alexander about four years to conquer the entire Persian Empire. Though I mean, this is a big empire. He went down to Egypt. He went down the entire Mediterranean coast, conquered Egypt, then came back and conquered Persia proper in that whole area. Then he kept going and got halfway into India. That's a long ways from Greece. Halfway into India, when his army said, we're, they mutinied. They just said, stop, you knucklehead. <laughs> we're tired of 
you just glorifying yours. We want to go home. We want to retire. And so they turned around. They mutinied. They turned around. And in 323 B.C., Alexander died. Actually, as I indicated earlier, he was probably killed by his own staff because he was planning more invasions, and they were done. No. And so when he died, his four leading generals divided the empire. Greece, one general took Greece proper, another took what is to be essentially modern-day Turkey. Uh, the Seleucids, these are the two we're concerned with. The Seleucids took the main Middle East, Persia, the Mediterranean coast, and so forth, and the Ptolemy, and Ptolemy took Egypt. And initially, the Ptolemies governed Judea. But then they started, those two Greek dynasties started warring with each other, and they warred with each other and warred with each other. And that's a big part of what we find in Daniel chapters 10 and 11 is the warfare between these two Greek-dominated areas and these two Greek dynasties. Well, this went on and on and on, and finally uh, there was a fellow by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, and he became the leader of the Seleucid dynasty. And he went down to Egypt, and he defeated the Egyptians. And the Egyptians agreed, okay, yes, you have defeated us. So he turned around and went back to Syria. And as soon as he got back to Syria, the Ptolemies in Egypt, who were still there, they were going to be running the bureaucracy. Uh, he left them in place. They said, oh, never mind. We've decided we're, we haven't been conquered after all. <laughs> and so he reassembled his army in a great rage. And he went back down to Egypt, and he got to the edge of Egypt. And this is where we pick up in Daniel. Uh, I'm going to start reading in Daniel 11:29. So everything that I have said to you, and let me, by the way, we're going to read up through verse 35 to begin with. And in Daniel 10 and 11, up through 11:35, there are about 135 distinct prophecies that have all been fulfilled. If you go and look at the details of what is written, what was disclosed to Daniel, and you look at the historical record as it was carried out, 135 specific things that were carried out in detail. We have a God who is the God and governor of the details. But we're going to pick up in uh, 1129. At the appointed time, he, this is Antiochus Epiphanes, this Seleucid, shall return and go toward the south, towards Egypt. But it shall not be like the former or the latter. It's not going to be like it was before. For ships from Cyprus. Now, the word in the, Greek, in the Hebrew text is katim. That was the Hebrew word for what is today what was called the island of Cyprus. Ships from that direction shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be re grieved and return and rage against the Holy Covenant. Well, what happened? 
he got down to the edge of Egypt to reconquer Egypt again, and he is met by a Roman representative, a Roman legate. Now, at this time, the Romans are a rising power in the Mediterranean. They're doing a lot of conquering. And the name of this Roman legate, or consul, his name is Gaius Populus Laenus. We know who he is. And he meets with Antiochus Epiphanes there, just as he's about to enter Egypt. They meet on the shore of the Mediterranean. And this fellow says, by the way, why does it say towards Cyprus? Why does it say Rome? Because as Daniel's writing, Rome is a little village on the edge of the Tiber that Daniel will have never heard of or anybody else. It was just a little village at the time Daniel's writing this. But this is the direction they will come from. And this consul... Gaius Populus Lanus meets with Antiochus Epiphanes and he says, you know, I need, we need to uh, have a, a, a little consultation here. And uh, you need to know that Rome has become pretty heavily dependent on the consistent uh, harvest of wheat in Egypt. It's become really an important thing to us and for you to go down into Egypt and keep messing with them, you are disrupting our bread supply, our wheat supply. And so we Romans would prefer that you just keep your hands off of Egypt. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I've already conquered these people. And it, well, no, we think it would be wise for you to consider this because really if you're messing from now on, if you're messing with them, you're messing with us. Well, I'll go back to my tent and I'll think about your advice. And at this point, the Roman council pulled his sword out of his sheath, drew a circle in the sand around the feet of Antiochus Epiphanes there on the shore. And he said, you will decide before you step out of that circle. <clears throat> he wisely chose to back up and not mess with Egypt. <laughs> because messing with Egypt would be messing with this rising power, and he knows he doesn't have the power to deal with the Romans. So he wisely s agrees. But you could imagine his frame of mind as he's going back to Syria. He is fit to be tied. And so... As he turns around, what is the first people group that he's looking at as he turns around? Here's Israel. Here's Israel. And they've got, by the way, a, a temple and a fortified city, Jerusalem, but he is their ruler. He rules the Judea. It's part of his empire. And so he goes to Jerusalem. He's going to vent his spleen on the Jews. And he goes into... He, on his way back, he charges into Jerusalem, goes into the temple, erects a, an altar to Zeus, and puts up an idol to Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem and, and offers a sow on that altar. He is desecrating the temple as much as he possibly can. I'm 
I'm going to tell these Jews no more of this worshiping the God of Abraham nonsense. They're going to become Zeus worshipers. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to make him do this. So he desecrates the temple. And then he actually sends pagan missionaries out amongst the Jews. And if you're familiar, and you can read this as part of the uh, apocryphal books, uh, the, the books of the Maccabees. And it gives you the account, the historical account, of the, the Maccabees rising rebellion. And what happened is one of these missionaries showed up at a village there in Judea, and he puts up an idol of Zeus, and he says to the gathered crowd, okay, which one of you Jews will be the first to burn incense before this idol of Zeus? And a Jewish fellow actually stepped forward to do that. Well, there was another man in the crowd with a heavy coat, cloak on, uh, masking the fact that he had a, sh a sword. <laughs> and so when that Jewish man stepped forward to burn incense to Zeus, Judah Maccabee, the priest, pulls out his sword and takes that man's head right off his shoulders. And then he turns around and kills the pagan missionary. And that was the beginning of the Maccabean rebellion against the power of Antiochus Epiphanes. And it was about a seven-year rebellion, and they succeeded in throwing off the, the yoke, the power of the Seleucid dynasty. And it was in 176 B.C. that the Maccabees were able to go in and to rededicate, the, to cleanse the temple and rededicate it. But what we find here, let me begin again in uh, 1129. At the appointed time, he, talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former time or the latter. For, the shi for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and shall regard for those who forsake the holy covenant. Hey, any of you Jews that want to forsake the God of Abraham and follow Zeus, I will elevate you. I will have high regard for you. The forces and forces shall be mustered by him, and they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. Then they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. Now, this is an event that's going to be repeated in a way, yet future to us, by that fellow called the Antichrist. He's also going to desecrate the temple. But the first one to do so is Antiochus Epiphanes. Take away the daily sacrifice and place there the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God, such as the Maccabees, shall be strong and carry out great exploits. And those of the people <clears throat> who understand shall instruct many. Yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame by captivity and plundering. It's not going to be an easy struggle. Now when they fall, fall they shall be added, excuse me, aided with a little help. Put your glasses on, Mark. But many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those who 
of understanding shall fall. To, de- to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end. But it is still for an appointed time. There will be many of them who will die, but they will be authentic martyrs for the glory of their God. Now, at this point, the narrative turns, and it's not immediately clear. But let me, well, let me just keep reading. Then the king shall do according to his own will, and he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. At this point, beginning in verse 36, we've been talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. All of a sudden, it sounds like we're still talking about him, but we're not. All of a sudden, things are stated that were not true of Antiochus Epiphanes, but will be true of the Antichrist, the next man who will desecrate the temple. And so... We're talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Then all of a sudden, wait, who's this? He will elevate a God not known. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes only elevated Zeus. He never abandoned the gods of his fathers. He shall do according, again, verse 36, he shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every God. He will demand worship of himself. And that's what we will discover when we get into the book of Revelation. What essentially happens is when the beast, which is what he's called in the book of Revelation, he's the leader of a revived Roman Empire. He's being basically given the way I envision it, a guided tour of the temple in Jerusalem. But This is halfway through the seven year tribulation. And he turns to his Jewish hosts and he says, well, you fellows need to know that I am your Messiah. And you need to be worshiping me. The word Antichrist, which the Apostle John uses twice in his letter, 1 John. That's where that term comes from. The Greek prefix anti means either against, as it does in English, or in the place of. He won't say, I hate that guy, Jesus of Nazareth, though, by he, in fact, he does. <laughs> He's going to say, I am, in fact, who Jesus claimed to be. I am your promised Messiah, Christ. And that's when the blinders will fall off the Jewish eyes and they will say, uh, no. But he's making this declaration in the temple, thus desecrating the temple. Because he's, de- he's standing in the middle of the temple in Jerusalem demanding worship of himself. Again, verse 36, Then the king shall do according to his own will. He shall exalt and magnify himself above every god shall speak blasphemies against the God of gods and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished, till all of God's wrath has been completed. He will prosper. In fact, the very last thing that takes place when Jesus, when God is completing his wrath is what? The destruction of the Antichrist. 
Again, verse 37, excuse me, verse 36, and shall prosper till the wrath has been accomplished for what has been determined shall be done. Now, remember, this is still Daniel at the edge of the Tigris rivers, still receiving this information from this angel. And he's being given this information. For what has been determined shall be done. He shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women. Well, you go back into the, into the Bible narrative. All the way back to the garden. Now, by the way, let me give you, there are some people that try to say this, he won't desire women, that is, he'll be a homosexual. I don't think that's the point at all. I think the point is, way back in the garden, when the serpent, Lucifer, had contrived the fall of man, he said, God said to the serpent, I'm going to bring forth the seed of the woman. Here, you entice the woman to believe your lies so that she ate of the fruit. Then Adam, who'd been standing there like a bump on a log, not doing anything that he was supposed to be doing to, to stop this nonsense, he took a bite and your eyes were opened. But the woman was the weaker of the two, so he, she was the one that the serpent enticed. And what does the Lord say to the serpent? The seed of the woman will crush your head. You will strike his heel, but he will crush your head. And what do we find hundreds and hundreds of years later in Isaiah 7:14? You've seen it on many of your Christmas cards. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Jesus of Nazareth drew all of his humanity from the woman, from Mary. Joseph was her legal husband, but it says in the scripture they didn't know each other sexually until after Jesus was born. Jesus was born by a she was by a miracle of God. He is God the Son. He is fully God, fully man, drawing all of his humanity from Mary. And that's what is the desire. The women, as down to the descendants of Eve, when is, when is that? When am I going to have that seed <laughs> that's going to crush Satan's head? That's the desire of women, as to be liberated by this seed. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which is Hebrew for God with us. He, this one, this fellow, will shall, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers nor the desire of women, nor the Christ, the actual Christ, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. I am a brand new God, and you need to be worshiping me. But in their places he shall honor a God of fortresses, and so he's, he's fortifying things, and a God which 
His fathers did not know. He shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. And by the way, even the Antichrist who sees himself as a god, if you read Revelation chapter 13, you find that there is a, it's a wicked trinity. It is the wicked trinity is the dragon, Lucifer, and the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, which is, the, which is a false Holy Spirit. So you father, find in the person of the dragon, Lucifer, a replacement for God the Father. You find in the person of the beast, a replacement for God the Son. And you find in the, pers- in the person of the false prophet, a replacement for God the Holy Spirit. You find a, a wicked trinity. He shall honor, verse 38, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus he shall act act against the strong fortresses with a foreign God, which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them, probably speaking of those who are, has submitted to him, and that's uh, disclosed in chapter 7 is the ten horns and again that's repeated in the book of Revelation the ten horns these these uh, nations that have submitted themselves cause them to rule over many and divide the land for gain he is going to succeed and succeed and succeed and succeed until he meet he runs into a brick wall by the name of Jesus verse 40 at that At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. The king of the south, this would be in Egypt. Now the vantage point we're standing in is, is, is Palestine, is Israel. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. This would be up from the area of Russia shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. No matter who rises against him, he succeeds in defeating them. He shall also enter the glorious land, meaning Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of of Ammon. What in the world? Edom, Moab, and Ammon are tiny little areas to the east of Jerusalem. Now, if you look at the book of Revelation, you have in two different places in Revelation, one in chapter 12 and another in chapter 13, where God's people, the Jews, are in Jerusalem are told to run to the east because there will be a place of divine protection and provision. For three and a half years, they will experience supernatural protection and supernatural provision. And that what's to the east of Jerusalem? Edom, Moab, Ammon. These little places, but they will receive divine protection. But these countries shall escape his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of of Ammon. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. Whatever else he goes against, he succeeds, except those three, that tiny little enclave 
to the east of Jerusalem. He can't penetrate because it's protected by God himself. Verse 42, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasuries, treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also, the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels, those, those to the south of Egypt. And as he's down there in Egypt and these other nations, the Ethiopians and the Libyans are bowing to him, he hears news from the east. And the north shall trouble him. Now, what's to the northeast from Egypt? Israel. He's going to hear something that's going to trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. And shall plant the tents of his palace or his encampment between the seas. The Red Sea and the Excuse me. Yeah, the red, uh, the sea of Gal, the sea of Galilee, and the Mediterranean. That's where he puts his encampment. And we're told in Revelation, chapter fourteen, that he is going to have such a large army. It's going to basically be fill an area ninety two in a radius of ninety two miles all the way around Jerusalem will be filled with the soldiers of all of these ten nations that are following him and his own soldiers. That's a lot of soldiers. It's 90, in a straight line, it's 92 miles from Kerrville to Georgetown. So, pictures that. A circle that big around Kerrville filled with soldiers. That's what's surrounding Jerusalem. And, but what's going to happen? The close of verse 45, 11.45, Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. All of a sudden, this, this fellow who's been able to conquer everything, he's been able to come again except that little enclave, he's going to come to his end. 12.1, At that time, Michael shall stand up. Now, in the Bible... Michael is the archangel, which means ruling angel, whose special responsibility is the protection, the defense of Israel. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince <coughs> who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation even to that time, and at that time, your people shall be delivered. Your people, Daniel, will be delivered. They're about to be annihilated, but they will be delivered. This king who has come against them will run into a brick wall, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time, and at that time, your people shall be delivered Everyone who is found written in the book. That is the book of life. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There's going to be a resurrection. We will get into the details of this in the book of Revelation. But that it is at the time of the second coming of Christ. It's right after the Antichrist has been completely defeated will be the resurrection of the just. 
Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And when we get into the details in Revelation chapter uh, 19 and 20, what we're going to see is the, the, the saints, the just will be resurrected, and then it'll be a thousand years later that the uh, unbelievers will be resurrected and stand before the great white throne. Some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So all of those people throughout the ages who have given themselves in service to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the triune God, they will step into their kingdom reward. What does Jesus say in, this, in the Sermon on the Mount? The, the eighth beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James in James chapter 1 talks about when we have endured the test, what awaits us? The crown of glory is what awaits us. I, <coughs> I hate to break it to you, but the Christian life is not a tiptoeing through the tulips. It is a test. It is walking a difficult pathway just as our Lord Jesus did. But in the same way that following his crucifixion, he was raised from the dead and elevated to the right hand of the Father, that is used as a template for us. In the same way that he was elevated to great glory, so the measure by which we are imitators of his sacrifice and his dedication, we too will be elevated to great glory. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars of, of as the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words. This is, you can write, get all this written down. And seal the book until the time of the end. Now, I mentioned way back in Deuteronomy, when we looked at Deuteronomy 32, and we looked at the seals in the book of Revelation, and we looked at what was stated in Deuteronomy 32, and it describes all of these things that are going to God is going to do to Israel to drive them to repentance and to restore them. And I made the point then, in the book of Revelation, there are seven seals. Six of them are in Deuteronomy 32. This is the seventh. And this, the way I understand Revelation, this is the first seal. When Jesus start, takes the scroll from the right hand of him who sits on the throne, his father, he takes the scroll and he starts to open the scroll and he breaks the seal. The first seal was the white horse rider who has a bow and he goes forth conquering and to conquer. Now, some want to take that as Jesus. I think, in fact, it is the Antichrist. Number one, he's given a kingdom. Jesus isn't given a kingdom. He earns his kingdom. He is in the book of Revelation. He prevails. 
to receive his kingdom. He's earned it. This fellow is given a kingdom. And why is he riding a white horse, Mark? Because the Jewish people will look on him with great favor for the first three and a half years. Their association with him when the first day of the seven-year tribulation is marked by their signing a mutual security pact with this fellow. He's the head of a, a revived Roman Empire. He has just signed a mutual security pact with the Jewish people, and they, are, they love this guy for three and a half years until he's in the, they are giving him a tour of the temple, and he declares himself to be God, and then, uh, no. But initially... He is a hero to them. He is a defender of them. And so that, and he, but he goes forth to conquer many nations. And this is where we find that seal. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. What has been the subject of what has been disclosed to Daniel? That fellow. And what he's going to do. What the nature and character of his conquests will be. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, now the angel has stopped for a moment. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there stood two others, two more angels, one on this riverbank, remember he's on the bank of the Tigris River, and one on the other riverbank. And one said to the man clothed in linen, this is the angel above the waters, who was above the waters of the river, how long shall the fulfillment of these wonders be? So you've got an angel asking an angel, how long will it be? Then I heard the man clothed in linen, the angel above the river, who was above the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it shall be for a time, times, and half a time. Now when we get, we already have seen this in Daniel <coughs> 9, when we talked about the uh, 70 weeks of Daniel, when you get into the book of Revelation, you find that expression time, times, and half a time. And it is the same as within the, also you find the expression 42 months, and you also find the expression 1260 days. They're all the same thing. A time, times, and half a time, that's three and a half years. One, two, three, and a half. How many months are there in three and a half years? 42 months. How many days are there in three and a half years? In a lunar calendar of 360 day years. 1260 days. 360 plus 360 plus 360 plus 180 is 1260. Right down to the day. God is extremely precise in what he does. And so why does it say three and a half years why not seven years because it's talking about the second half of the tribulation which is called the great tribulation that's when all the wheels truly fall off and satan and the antichrist and the false prophet go maniacal again verse uh seven then i heard the man clothed in linen who was above the 
waters of the river when he held up his right hand and his left hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever that it shall be for a time, times and half a time, three and a half years. And when the power of the holy people has been completely shattered, all these things shall be finished. Well, how will their power be completely shattered? Because their Jerusalem is surrounded by this massive army that is there for one purpose only, to annihilate them. They're there to impose on the Jews Hitler's final solution. We're going to wipe you people out. And when they are, to and uh, if you want to read the graphic version of this, read Zechariah 12, 13, 12, 13 and 14. It is a very graphic version of this. Verse 8. Although I heard, I, Daniel, speaking for himself, I did not understand. Then I said, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? I mean, you can imagine the, what an overwhelming experience this is. Verse 9, Then he and he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and, here's our word again, sealed till the time of the end. Many shall be purified, made white and refined, the, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand. They're going to think they know what's going on, but they don't know what's going on. But the wise shall understand. That's why we're here tonight. <laughs> we want to be among that number who understand. And from the time that the daily sacrifice is taken away, this is the abomination of desolation in the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation that initiates the last three and a half years. From the time that the, that the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of desolation is set up, okay, get ready for it, hang on to your seat, there shall be 1,290 days. Wait, what, Mark, Mark, you just told us 1,260 days. And what happens on 1,260 days? That's the second coming of Christ. What's this extra 30 days we got here? And now let me just read the next two verses, and it's really going to throw you off. Blessed is he who waits and comes to the 1,335 days. That's an additional 45 days. What's going on? I'm going to tell you in just a moment, okay? But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of days. Okay, Mark, what is this extra 30 days followed by an extra 45 days? Well, when Jesus comes, he's going to rescue the Jews who are in Jerusalem. He's going to annihilate the Antichrist and all of his armies. But, the job of restoring Israel and the nations isn't done yet. Turn for just a moment. Just before Daniel is the prophet Ezekiel. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 to 38. Ezekiel 20, 33 to 38. This is what's going to happen 
in the 30 days following the second coming of Christ. Ezekiel 20, verse 33, As I live, says the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out, I will rule over you. He is addressing the Jews. I will bring you out of the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered. Now there are Jews all over the planet. I will bring you out of the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples. This is a known area to the south of Israel proper. I will bring you to the wilderness of the peoples, and there I will plead my cause with you face to face. Just as I pleaded my, my case with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, upon the event of the Exodus, so I will plead my case with you, says the Lord God. I will make you pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And I will purge the rebels from among you and those who transgress against me. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So what happens in those first 30 days following the second coming of Christ? He will supernaturally gather every Jew on the planet to this location to the south of Israel. He will enter into judgment and Purge the rebels from them, their midst. Now, we say to this, what in the world is in the brain of anybody that's standing there actually looking at Jesus and all of his power and glory and still being a rebel? Exactly the same thing that is today happens when people are rebels today. In fact, one of the shocking things of Zechariah 12 is when it, I told you how graphic it was about this in its description of the second coming of Christ, it says, thus says the Lord, dot, 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 he will rip open the heavens. He will come out, rip open the heavens over Jerusalem while Jerusalem is surrounded by the, by the armies of the Antichrist, about to be annihilated. He will rip open the heavens and ride out on a white horse. This is Zechariah 12. He will ride out, and it says, and they, the Jews in Jerusalem, will look on me whom they pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. I remember many years ago, almost about 1970, a long time ago, standing on Hollywood Boulevard in L.A. on a Friday or Saturday night in an evangelism event, and I'm talking to a guy who said he was Jewish, and no way that Jesus is the Messiah. Da, da, da. Oh, no, no, no way, no way, no way. I said, let me ask you this. And he claimed to be a knowledgeable Jew. I said, let me ask you about this. It says in Zechariah chapter 12, with Jerusalem surrounded by the armies of the Antichrist about to be annihilated, thus says the Lord, I will rip open the heavens and I will come out and they will look on me whom they pierced and mourn for him as for an only son. And I said to this fellow, you and I both know there's only one person in all of Jewish history that the Jewish people as a whole took responsibility for having pierced, and that's Jesus of Nazareth. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Only Jesus fits that description. 
And it was like the Holy Spirit went kapush, sucker punched this guy because there is only one person. And you know what it says in Zechariah 12? He will pour out on them a spirit of grace and of supplication and they will separate themselves from one another and more. But you know what it goes on to say? Only one third of them in Jerusalem will repent. What? What facts do you lack? Well, an overwhelming fact, ladies and gentlemen, is we are rebels. Stiff-necked rebels. And there are people who literally choose hell rather than to bow the knee. What does it say here? This is within the 30 days following that Jerusalem event. He gathers every Jew into the wilderness of the peoples and they go under and some will still not repent. I will bring them out of the country where they dwell, but they shall not enter Israel. Then you will know that I am the Lord. But those who do repent, those who do believe in he will lead them into, into Israel to enjoy kingdom blessing. Okay, Daniel 12. You got that extra 45 days, Mark. After this, first 30 days following Jesus' second coming, the judgment of Israel. What happens in that next 45 days? We find the details of that in Matthew 25. <clears throat> Join me there, please. Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, in, in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand but the goats on the left then the king shall say to those on his right hand come you blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for i was hungry and you gave me food i was thirsty and you gave me drink i was a stranger and you took me in i was naked and you clothed me I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. What's he saying? At the judgment of the nations, at the judgment of the nations, the external proof of their having authentically repented is during this tribulation era, how did you treat my Jewish brothers and sisters? That will be the visible evidence of their authentic relationship with God. Verse 41, then he also, 
He will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he answered, will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, again, my brethren, you did not do it to me. And these will go into everlasting punishment but the righteous into eternal life. And so those who make it past the 75th day, <laughs> following 30 plus 45, 75th day, into that millennial kingdom, at that point, everybody still walking around on the planet is an authentic believer. And the first 30 days following his second coming, the judgment of Israel, and then the next 45 days, the judgment of the nations. Does that make sense? Okay, well, any comments or questions? Right, Antiochus Epiphanes. Judah Maccabee, right, right. Uh, Josephus is probably right about that. Oh, just, um, yes, Josephus is, was the great historian of the Mediterranean time. Yeah, and of course, Josephus himself was a, <laughs> Josephus was a Sadducee. And he was actually, when the Jews rebelled against the Romans in 68 AD, Josephus was a, a Jewish general. And he was leading some Jewish troops up in the Galilean region when the, he was captured by the Romans. Well, the Romans took him back as a prisoner to Rome. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, they didn't execute him. They allowed him to live. Well, he became the great historian of that era and what preceded it. And so, yeah, I mean, jo you can still buy Josephus's book and it's about two, th two inches thick at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. But also in the apocryphal books, which are written during the intertestamental period, there are the books of the Maccabees also, and they're they're very clear and uh, carefully written also. Yes, where Petra is, is where Edom, Moab, and, and the place where the Ammonites were. Yeah, the, the Rose Red City of Petra is in that area. Yeah, that's going to be part, uh, is to the east of Jerusalem. That is part of that area, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, but that's going to be the place of protection, is that area and divine protection and provision for three and a half years until the second coming. So, all right, Lord Jesus, we want to thank you. I know this was a lot to cover, a lot of material, but we thank you 
that you are giving us a handle on what the program is going to be so that how wonderful it's going to be when we actually are witnesses of these events that are going to yet unfold before us and we're going to see you act in complete fulfillment of your word because you are the righteous God. You tell us ahead of time what you're going to do and you fulfill it as as you, Jesus, said, right down to the jot and tittle, right down to the smallest letter and part of a letter. And we give, we give you thanks that you are a God of such love, holiness, goodness, provision, and care. We thank you that we have a God who is totally, can be trusted. You never fail. And we give you thanks for that. In your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.